I feel like I should fail English whenever I text, don't you? Anybody know what 2G2BT means? You guys are just amazing. You know, it took me 10 minutes to figure that out. <laughs> I'm the one preaching the message. <laughs> We're uh, welcome. Welcome for the second part of our text series. We, uh, we got started last week with, uh, with Denise Snowden, and I've been looking forward to her uh, being up here for almost a year now, and I hope you enjoyed her. Uh, her schedule just finally allowed her to fit something like this into everything else she's doing. And I, so I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, also I wanted to make note of, uh, just so you know a little bit who they are, sometimes you don't always know who our leadership team is here. Walt Miller, the guy who did the communion for us earlier, is on our board of elders. And, uh, and Walt yesterday was celebrated by all the young bucks at the men's retreat as the model to follow, the example to follow, because Walt is... Somewhere in his 70s, and he did the zip line at the men's retreat. And he did the, he did the vertical playpen, which is you climb 50 feet to sit on a rubber tire at the top. And he made it almost all the way up yesterday. And all of us kind of went, wow, we had a hard time tuning that in this guy's. So anyway, that, that's Walt. Walt's awesome. And uh, he didn't tell his wife that he did that. <laughs> So he walked into church this morning, and Karen Chawley made sure that his wife knew that uh, that he had done those things, and she went, what? <laughs> so, well, I got a story to start off today. Today we're talking about our second part series in the text, and, and I want to start with a story. Uh, I grew up, uh, many of you know, in a pastor's home in, in rural communities, and so we we had lots of opportunity in the 70s to go to fantastic celebration meals. Like anytime somebody got baptized, they would throw this big feast. And I tell you what, farmers know how to put a spread on. And we would go there and we would sit with 25, 30 other people and eat this meal. And, and so some of those stories ended up with legends. They ended up being legends in our family. One of them that I'm not going to tell is the, uh, you call that a half a glass legend story. But I'm not going to tell you that one because it's going to take too long. But it, there was another one. And this actually happened. I know, I know the family. It actually happened after I went to college. So I was really disappointed to not be there in first person. But I knew the family. And, and it was this wonderful family. The patriarch of the family farm uh, was this 88-year-old guy who was about... Uh, about five six, five seven, and he was uh, again 88 years old and about 350 pounds. And we went to this meal, and you know it's not it's not that uncommon. I mean, these guys were raising their own pigs and their own cows and their own chickens and their own everything, you know, pretty much, and they'd butcher it themselves. So it wasn't uncommon to go to a big feast like that and have like several kinds of meat and just a huge spread. And so my dad and my dad and his, my brother were sitting at the end of the table, and 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 they were eating a wonderful ham meal. And all the time they were sitting there, the, the guy, the patriarch at the other end of the table who, who talked kind of gruff was always, was, they constantly heard him saying, please pass the white meat. And they went, wow, they're really putting on a spread. They've got chicken or turkey or something down there, and we, but it's never made it down here. The ham's good enough. We don't need it. Well, at the end of the meal... They were picking up all the plates, and as they were picking up other people's plates, the patriarch says, Hey, don't throw away that white meat. Can you give it to me? He was eating the fat of the ham off of everybody else's plate. <laughs> 
Now, you, you, you cringe because you know abundantly clear. You can conclusively say that's not very healthy. I mean, how in the world did this guy at 350 pounds eat that way for his whole life and make it to 88 is like a, a miracle of nature, a freak of nature somehow, you know? But yet, last week we had an interesting survey, didn't we? It was, uh, it was a survey to ask ourselves, you know, how many of us thought the Bible was authoritative? How many thought the Bible was really conclusively true and we know it to be true? And, and maybe some of you have a different idea of what authoritative means, and we'll probably talk about that sometime. And then, and then we also asked, and most of you actually thought it was authoritative. There were a few who really questioned, weren't sure, and there were some who thought, nah, it's not. It's just, a, it's just kind of a book of fantasies and stories and, you know, religion stories and stuff. And, and then uh, we also asked the question, how many of you have intentionally read the Bible all the way through so you know what's in it. And most of us had not ever intentionally read it. You know, that's a little bit like, you know, please pass the white meat. You know, we, we, we know what conclusively is authoritative and true, but, but we, we don't actually do it. It's kind of like we know what a good diet is in our life. We know what things are healthy for us, but, you know, most of us, you know, we, we fudge it a little bit and we don't even really necessarily eat what we know is good and healthy for us. And the same is true of the Bible. And there's another story, you know, and, and I'm sure all of you who are parents can relate to this, and some of you can probably remember you doing this as a kid. You know, how many times have you have you taken something to your kids and it was something brand new they'd never eaten before and, and putting it before your kids, and what do they say? I don't like that, right? And what do you say? You haven't eaten it. How do you know you're not going to like it? I, I mean, I can remember putting pizza before my I can remember putting ice cream before my kids and getting that that response right and it's just one of those insane arguments and yet for a few of you here probably who don't necessarily believe the bible's authoritative and or maybe or maybe don't even believe this whole christian thing for sure yet maybe you're sitting there and saying yeah i don't believe it but you haven't read it and you're actually making the exact same argument our kids make all the time set it before you Nah, it's not true. I don't believe it. You know, the whole purpose, I mean, there, you'll learn a few more things throughout this time, but really the whole purpose of this short series of called texts that we're doing is has one main agenda. Would you just read the Bible? Would you really get to know it and, and see what it's about and take a look at it? Because even beyond that, you owe it to yourself because so many of us, in our in American culture especially, have been exposed to things about the Bible and we don't even know it sometimes or sometimes we think it's in the Bible and, and we think all these great sayings are part of the Bible and they, they impact us, they, they impact how we feel about ourselves, they make us feel guilty or they make us feel good about ourselves or, or whatever. And how many of you have heard this statement? You know, I actually, I actually, after even finding this statement, I googled all these statements that are biblical that aren't really biblical. We, these common statements we say. How many of you have heard this? The good book says the good Lord helps those who help themselves. How many of you have ever been down? I don't know if you ever do this. I, I've been down where, where I've been talking to people who aren't saved, and sometimes I've been down talking to people who are drunk about the Bible, and they'll all quote the Bible back to you, and it's just really out. You know, that statement, the good Lord helps those who help themselves, that's not in the Bible. In fact, it's not even biblical. So how many other things in your life do you have that you've been impacted by that you believe that don't give you an accurate picture of the Bible or who God is? And we owe it to ourselves to read it for ourselves, 
to really know it. Because it's, it's this really amazing, amazing book. In fact, it's not really even just one book. It's actually 66 books. And you guys, most of you got that answer right. Good job last week. And, and it's this 66 books that were written over about 1,500-year time period from 1,400 B.C. to the last of them being written at 68 A.D. And it's not just written by obviously one person. Nobody lived that long. It's written by 40 different authors, many of whom didn't even know each other. And yet the reality is this, this amazing book tells one story. It tells the story of this, of this, of this God who's redeeming this prodigal race, this, this creation that has rebelled about him and he rebelled against him and wanting to have him back. It's, it's this story of this wonderful, kind, patient father who, who even though his son has run away and, and is rebelling, just patiently waits. And, and the minute he sees him running back, before he's even had a chance to apologize, he kindly runs to him and embraces him and, and throws a party for him and loves him. It's, it's, the, it's the story of of this king who decides not, instead of when people rebel against him, not to power up and and to judge them and punish them as they deserve, but instead to become one of them, to woo them back to his love. It's this beautiful story that spans 66 books, spans 1,500 years of of the writers and several thousand years of history, and and yet it's, it's this one amazing story that's all together. It's just an extraordinary document. And not only that, but, but you know, some people say, well, yeah, well, maybe, maybe that was really true, but can we really trust that, that the Bible is really the accurate words? I mean, after all, it's a really old document. And the reality is there is no other document in history that is so well-preserved and so well-maintained and so reliably accurate. Did you know, for instance, that in the New Testament alone, that there are over 24,000 manuscripts from less than 100 years after the originals to 300 years after. In fact, the oldest manuscript we have is only 20 years after the original was written. And the amazing thing is that these manuscripts, some of them were, were, were written in Egypt and some of them were written in the Middle East and some of them were written in Rome and elsewhere. And, and yet all of them being written in different places you actually start to compare them and realize that you can conclusively, by looking at all the manuscripts, come to the point where you say, we have the accurate words of the original manuscript today because there's so much agreement between these 24,000 manuscripts. And I mean, we've all played telephone, right? You've all played the game telephone where you sit in a big circle of 20 people and you whisper something in somebody's ear and you try to see if it'll end up the same around. I mean, what are the odds? 20, I mean, most of the time it doesn't even end up being the same thing, right? By the time it gets to you, what are the odds of 24,000 manuscripts written in, in dozens of different places around the world actually agreeing so greatly that you can conclusively say we have the accurate document? And the Old Testament is amazing too. In 1947, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. You probably have heard of that. And these Dead Sea Scrolls date from 300 years before Christ to about 100 years after Christ as to when they were written. And they include all of the books of the Old Testament except for Esther. And when you compare them to the next oldest manuscript, which was 1,000 years after this, there's 95% word-for-word agreement between these manuscripts. And when you look at the 5% of the agreement of, of the text that doesn't agree, it's mostly spelling errors and small grammatical errors that do not affect anything substantively. Now that 
is amazing that something would be that well preserved. And the interesting thing is, for us, even in some of our own American history, much less ancient history, we assert things every day in our classrooms, in our schools, in our history books, as something that's fact, that has not even the same ballpark of evidence of being accurate. And yet we will question sometimes the accuracy of our texts in the Bible. And it really is statistically... uh, It's amazing. It's impossible, statistically, for what has happened in the preservation of our text, in the writing of our text, the likelihood that things would line up as one story. And it's something that, even if we don't believe in it, it demands at least a look, just because of the extraordinary influence it's had on all of our lives and all of history. But, you know, the, the reality is that sometimes, sometimes the Bible and sometimes the reason we don't read the Bible is because it can be a little bit of a confusing document. So today we're going to spend most of our time now talking about clarifying, you know, some of the basic things of, that typically cause confusion. And, you know, some of you, probably, uh, you know, a third of you or so may, have, may already know this really well, and it's just going to be complete review. A third of you probably know some of this, and it'll be a good review. And, you know, and a, probably a third of you may have never even heard of this. So we're all in different places. So let's just go on this little journey and, and look at the thing and, and, and take a look at this. And really, what, what, what really comes down to the, the main point of confusion for most of us when we try to read the Bible is the fact that it's not actually written and laid out in chronological order. And so it creates confusion for us because we don't know the circumstances as re- reading through it. We can, we can jump from this book that was written here and, and then all of a sudden we're in a book that was written over here and we don't even know the context of how they relate and so it becomes confusing. Just like the illustration we used a couple, a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Abraham, we said in order to really understand Abraham, you have to remember when it was written. Well, when, when Abraham was living, there was no Bible whatsoever. So when we see the story of God asking him to sacrifice his son, there's no law written that said that, that, so that there's no way he knows that God would never ask him to follow through with that. All he knows is that, oh yeah, the cultures around me all sacrifice their kids to their gods, so maybe this is what my God wants too. And unless you understand the chronology and what really was there at the time, it's so easy to look at some of these stories and take them totally out of context or even to look at some of the stories of the Bible and say, that looks really cruel or really awful when if you understand it in context, it doesn't necessarily come across that way. So we're going to take a look at the Bible and how it's laid out so that when you read it, you can actually have a better chance of understanding it. So if you pull out this little paper that you have in your, in your uh, programs today, um, we're going to start with a very big picture look and get a little bit more detailed and talk about it a little bit more. So there are two basic divisions of the Bible. What are they? Old Testament, New Testament. Who knows what the word testament means? Anybody? It means covenant. Now, that's a painful word to me because the only way we use that word today is like homeowner's covenants, and I was a homeowner's president at one point, and so it brings back really bad memories to me. But it's basically just a contract, right? And so we have the old covenant, the old 
contract, the Old Testament, which is actually a series of contracts and covenants that God made with humans. It, it starts out with a contract and a covenant made to Noah that he wouldn't flood the earth again in the same way he did. And, and then we have the, the contract or covenant with Abraham that basically says to Abraham in a nutshell, your name is going to be known for all generations around the whole world. And, and it is, isn't it? Abraham's name is probably one of the top five best-known names in all cultures of the world today. God fulfilled that. And he said, why? Because through you I will bless all nations. And then there's the covenant to David, which, which basically said to King David, somebody from your line, from your family line, will sit on the throne of Israel forever. And all these things seemed really far-fetched and amazing back then. But God made these covenants with them, and, and he, he worked with them in that way. And the reason we call the New Testament the New Covenant is this. In Luke 22, 20, Jesus says this on the, on the last night before he's crucified at the Passover meal. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Basically, he's saying, I'm establishing a new agreement with you as far as how we're going to relate, how I, God, and how humans are going to relate together. Now, the confusing part is we look at this and we say, okay, the Old Testament starts Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and, and that's actually not in chronological order of how, they, how the events actually occurred. In fact, what you see on this card, what I want you to notice is both for the Old and the New Testament, they're actually separated by type of literature, and that's how they're put together. So you've got the law, the first five books. You've got the historical books, and some of those overlap with each other. And then you've got the poetry, and you've got the prophets. And, and so if you actually flip the card over, if you want to actually figure out when things happen, what order they happen, and who's talking about what, you flip this over and you look down this center line. See the part up there that's got the red circle around it? This is actually the chronological order of the Bible. If you just want to read the story from beginning to end, this is the books and this is probably how you'd read it. And, it's, and the Bible is it's such an amazing book because it's, it's, a little bit like, uh, it's a little bit like a photo album. Now, how many of you have a photo album of your life, a chronological photo album of your life? If you're a single guy, just, okay, you just have to wait to get married unless your mom's made one, right? Because you, don't, you, don't, you, you, you need somebody to take care of your life and put it in order, right? So, okay, so, but here's a couple pictures from my life. And, and, and the interesting thing is these, these are, you know, they're cool. You kind of see my, that's not, that's not me jumping up and down. That's my little brother. I'm the guy in the kind of the weird orange, orange shirt there with my mouth dropping to my, my knees on that one. And, and, but you see, a photo, chronological photo album doesn't really tell you the whole story, does it? But the Bible, the Old Testament, is a little bit like a chronological photo album and several people's journals looking into that same thing. You see, if you'd look at several people's journals on the right there, you would know that what was coming out of my mouth about two seconds later was, oh, man, our first color TV, we actually get to watch the purple people eaters, and they are going to be purple. <laughs> right? I'm a Vikings fan if you didn't catch on. And, and, you know, if you read my brother Dale's journals, he might be saying something else. And, and if we looked more at the journal there, we'd be saying, oh, yeah, all of us are looking shocked there. And my little brother's jumping up and down because he was disobedient because he was supposed to stay on the couch with his eyes closed so they could roll it out. And then we could all open our eyes and see it together. But he didn't. So he was disobedient. But it's Christmas. So they were gracious to him. And you'd, yeah. And you see the, you see the, uh, the, my sister back there, um, 
obviously not a blood sister, right? Okay, and uh, and you'd get, you'd get to know the story that in my family, when I was growing up, we used to have foreign exchange students come with us for Christmas on a regular basis. So this is a wonderful lady that stayed about two weeks with us from Ghana and uh, celebrated Christmas with us. So, you know, the Bible is much the same way. You look through this, and let's look over here at 2 Samuel. Look, Maybe look on here, and you see 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel 11, you'll actually see the story, for instance, of David and Bathsheba. David, the great king of Israel, commits a heinous crime of adultery and murder of this woman's husband so he can have her as his wife. That's a real nice Christian person to follow, Right? You get to see that story written in 2 Samuel 11 and read it. And, and if you look down below it, then you see Psalms down here. And you, you get to look in Psalms 51 and you get to see David writing a prayer of repentance. And you not only get to see the story, the historical facts and the actions that occurred from it, but you get to actually peer into David's heart and his soul and his emotions of this, of this time when he, he was so betrayed as God and betrayed his country and betrayed his people by being such a bad leader and a bad example. And it's ama- an amazing thing uh, to look at. And, and then you look over a little bit further and you'll notice this 70-year gap of, and it's circled up there on the thing, and you'll see that God for 400 and some odd years had warned the people, part of his contract, part of his agreement was, if you will follow me, I will bless you and make you a blessing. If you don't, then judgment will come upon you because your sin's weight will fall upon you. And so we see at one point after hundreds and hundreds of years, and and if you look up here, you see tons of guys who actually were prophets, most of them speaking into those hundreds of years, saying, won't you come back with me, speaking for God, won't you come back to me? After hundreds of years of patience, more patience than any of us would ever have, God finally allows them to go into exile and be judged as disciplined for their repeated offenses and repeated sin. And, and then we see in Ezra that he's uh, the, the story of them starting to come back and God restoring them and restoring them back to their land and rebuilding their temple. And, and, and it's a beautiful story, but, but it's really confusing if you read uh, the guys up on the top here like Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. It's really confusing to read those prophets unless you realize the context they're speaking into. If you read them outside of the context, don't understand the circumstances, it will just seem foreign and weird to you. And you'll go, what does this have to do with anything? Is God just, you know, what is this about? Or if you read some of the prophets beforehand, like, uh, like Amos, you'll look at them and go, is God just really angry? What's the problem with God? But if you read it in the context of what was going on and how patient God had been and how what the depth of sin was, it all begins to make sense. So the context needs to be understood. And, And, you know, you get to the end of the card, past Nehemiah, and there's this, there's this amazing period. There's this period of 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament books, where during that time period, As far as we know, there was no record of God sending any kind of prophet, any kind of person to write anything that had made it into Scripture. It's kind of like referred to a lot of times as the 400 years of silence, kind of like, shh, where where God just didn't speak, God didn't do much. And what happened in that time period, we've all studied it in our history. What happened during those 400 years, it was the rise of the Persian Empire. 
It was the rise of the Greek Empire and Alexander the Great all running through and overrunning the Middle East and Israel and, and, and making slaves out of them and, and conquering them. And it was the rise of the Roman Empire. It was a time of great disillusionment and devastation, especially if you understand the context. These prophets that we see on this other list, the Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi and all the other ones, these guys had made all these promises about this Messiah, this deliverer who would come. And yet, can you imagine, 400 years, 400 years, and where's this guy? Where's this promised Messiah? Where's this deliverer? Can you imagine telling your kids, generation after generation, the stories of Abraham and Moses and the prophecies about the Redeemer and the, the Messiah, the one who would deliver us from all this corruption and all this pain and all this, and restore us to our fortunes as a nation. And, and yet during this 400 years, here comes the Persians. And we tell the story and, the, and, then, and then here comes Alexander the Great and, and we're in slavery again and our people are getting killed again. And, and then here comes the Romans and we're, we're oppressed again. And can you imagine the opportunity for this to just become a myth? Something that, something that just doesn't survive. I mean, think about it. How long have we been as a nation as America? We've only been 234 years as a nation. This is 400 years, almost twice as long as America has been a nation. There was silence on the biggest promises of God that he would deliver them, that he would restore them as a nation. How easy would it be if you lived during those 400 years for you to say, hey, Dad, hey, Mom, I've heard the story, but where's God? Where's God in this? What's he doing? Why isn't he showing up? Why isn't he delivering us? What's this all about, this oppression that we're going? Here comes Alexander. What's this about? Aren't we supposed to be the victors? Isn't God promised us something better than this? And yet, somehow, this religion survives. And if you study history, it is the only one of the ancient religions not to die, but to survive. What was it about this 400-year period? What was it about this Old Testament? What was it about this whole experience that caused it to survive that kind of difficulty? There's really no rational explanation for it. We should all have expected this to be game over. Just put a bow on it. Kill it. Bury it. So it happened to all the other religions of its day. They all went away. But then all of a sudden this angel appears to this little teenage girl in a no-name town called Nazareth and says, you're going to become pregnant by God, by the Holy Spirit. And not only are you going to become pregnant, but your child is going to be this promised Messiah, this one that the prophets talked about 400, 800, 900 years before. Can you imagine the people around her seeing her become pregnant and her saying this story and, and, and they're just going, ah, yeah, why are you trying to resurrect that myth? What's that all about? I mean, this is, do we really need to go down that path again? This is just way too hard to believe. And then we look back at the prophets and Malachi in 3.1 prophesies this. He says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. 
He's going to send a messenger. And then suddenly, out of this 400 years of darkness, this 400 years of silence, suddenly, it says, the Lord seek, will come and see, uh, to his temple. The Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. Malachi, 400 years earlier, says this, and then silence. Can we really grasp that? Then 400 years later, this, this scraggly, smelly, unkempt guy shows up at the Jordan River. And he starts preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, prepare you, way, pre- pre- prepare you the way of the Lord. There's the Messiah coming. And, and then one day we see him. We see him standing in the middle of the river. And, 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 and Jesus walks up and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And, and everybody's going, what's this about? What's this about? 400 years of silence. And then all of a sudden, John the Baptist starts coming and fulfilling these prophecies by Haggai and Malachi and a bunch of others. And and then we see Jesus show up on the scene and and he starts to fulfill literally hundreds of prophecies made six to eight hundred years before him, 400 to 800 years before him. He's fulfilling these prophecies that, that when you start adding it up and you start looking at it from even just a mathematical, statistical standpoint is absolutely impossible to accomplish. You see, this is an incredible book. This is the most incredible book in all of history. And it either speaks of a God who's behind it, who has inspired it, of whom it's his words to us, written by fallible human beings that he somehow works through to make it infallible. Or it's the most statistically amazing accident to ever happen in all of history. Now, let's jump back here for a second look at the New Testament. New Testament's laid out the same way. It's laid out by, by type of literature. It's not laid out in chronological order again. And, and you see the first category there is the Gospels. And, and the Gospels are simply this. They are the record of Jesus, primarily Jesus' three years of ministry. You'll see just a, a couple stories about his birth in there that we celebrate at Christmas. And you'll see a story about him around 12 years old. But then basically what you see is 95% or more of each of these books is about Jesus' three years of ministry and his death and resurrection. And they're actually written by two eyewitnesses. Matthew and John were two of his 12 disciples who walked with and recorded and saw all these things happen with him. Mark is actually written by a guy named Mark, and his source was Peter, one of Jesus' apostles. And uh, he interviewed other people. And Luke is an interesting guy. He was a medical doctor of the day, and history records that, that he was a medical doctor. And he actually interviewed all of the people he could find who were eyewitnesses of stuff, to write an orderly account. And then you look down and there's history recorded in Acts. So the Gospels are this three-year window of history of Jesus, and then, and then Acts is this 30-year history of the rise of the early church. And, and here's, here we get back to this whole thing of the, of the photo album and the journal again, because the letters are all your journals about what happens in the history, the photo album of Acts. And you get to actually see where when Paul and Acts visits Ephesus and, and you go down there and there's this book called Ephesians 
where he actually writes a letter to the people who came to Christ in that incident where he visited Acts in those time, that year and a half time period where he was there. You get to see the letter written to them and, and get to see some of the character of the people and the thoughts and the concerns that Paul had about their growth in faith. It's just this amazing amazing book and and it's even more amazing because when we look at history most of ancient history especially most of ancient history was written by people who were paid to write it by the king who wanted their story told and guess who looks really good in most of that ancient history it's the guy who was paying for it to be done right and yet this new testament is written by people who were persecuted by people who had adopted a Jewish cult that was against the law and they were running for their lives half the time. All of them, except for the possibility of Luke, wrote it willingly without being paid by somebody. There's, a, there's actually a strong case to be made that Luke wrote it at the, uh, and was being paid by the... He addresses a guy named Theophilus at the beginning of both Luke and Acts, the two books that Luke wrote. And some people believe because of the... Uh, there's a real strong case to be made because of the titles that are ascribed to Theophilus that he was an important government official who was paying Luke to go and research, go and have personal interviews. And, and, and the history gives an indication that Luke actually went and not just talked to the apostles, but he went and talked to Mary, and he, and he went and talked to some of the people who were actually in the stories of the healings that Jesus conducted, and he talked to the people who were around, and he may have even talked to like the Roman guards that, that were there and interviewed people, and he was paid by this government official who was not doing it to make his name look great. He was having an orderly account put together because he had believed in Jesus, and he wanted to make sure that the risk he was taking was worth it. Because he was standing up against the possibility that not only could he be put in prison, but his, his whole family could be killed. He could be dishonored because he was adopting this faith that was against the law. And then we look at this whole process as well. And, and you, you think about this. You think, how many people would have believed that Rome today would be filled with crosses everywhere when you go visit Rome today? Can you imagine going to Tiberius, who was the ruler at the time, the emperor at the time, and saying to him, hey, Tiberius, this, this Jewish carpenter that you guys put to death over here and this little Jewish cult that was actually the core leadership team was a bunch of, a, a, a bunch of uneducated uh, people who just kind of, Jesus kind of picked up ragtag of the crowd mostly. How, would you ever believe that this group would, would become predominant force in the Roman Empire? Would you ever believe that this group would replace all the pictures of your gods and all the temples of your gods in Rome and, and instead there would be crosses everywhere and Tiberius would have said, absolutely not. You've got to be joking with me. And yet this ragtag group writing these letters, we know transform the world because we still experience it today. You see, that's why people pick up this book, the Bible, and Mine happens to be on my iPod. I know some of you brought your Bibles today. I actually have a nice big Bible at home that traveled with me a lot when I was traveling in the Northwest in the rain a lot, and it, it's kind of fallen apart because it got wet too many times. And so I don't really take that one outside of reading it at home. But, you know, this is an amazing story because the promise given to Abraham, one of the very first covenants that his lineage, his seed would bless the entire world. It's fulfilled through Jesus. 
And, and there's this promise through the prophets and given to David himself that his lineage would sit on the throne and rule forever. And it's, and it's fulfilled in the same Jesus we worship. And then, and then there's Isaiah who prophesied about this Messiah coming and, and that he would be the person who would deliver us, but he would be a suffering servant who would suffer and die and everybody in his, age, in, in his time probably. When Isaiah, you're smoking crack. I mean, this, this is the guy who's supposed to deliver us, right? And you're telling me the Messiah is going to die? And Isaiah probably sat back then and said, that's what I saw. I don't know. It's what I saw. It doesn't make sense. It's just what I saw. And Jesus comes. And there's this angel that comes to Mary and starts fulfilling these prophecies about it. And, and Jesus comes and starts fulfilling all these prophecies. And, and Jesus himself says, here's how my ministry is going to go. It's going to end up here. And we're going to end up, I'm going to end up being crucified. And, and get ready. He's preparing his disciples. He pre- he's predicting the type of death. And he's predicting his resurrection. And, and you know, either... Either we've got the most statistically fantastic, impossible thing that actually occurred. Or Jesus really did rise from the dead. Either we've got this, this amazingly weird phenomena that happened that made the, the, the Bible and the story survive 400 years and then these really brilliant people figured out how to make a couple people fulfill these hundreds of obscure prophecies all throughout the Old Testament, some of which they, they hadn't even identified as prophecies about the Messiah before, but many of them which they had. How do you even orchestrate somebody's life to fulfill all of these things? Either God is in it or at the very least, it's just a really amazing thing that deserves our attention. And you know, if we believe it's authoritative, then we need to read it and make it personally authoritative. Not just to leave it out there. It needs to become personally authoritative in changing how we think, in deciding how we live. And if we don't believe it, if we don't believe it's authoritative, at least try it and see if it's more than just words on paper. See if it's more than just this story and this opium of the people to, to give people a national identity and, and, and to prop people's fantasies up and superstitions up. See, see if it might be more than that. See if it might actually be God speaking to us. Because to me, at least for me, I can't come to any other conclusion because it doesn't make sense that it should have survived. It doesn't make sense that it should have been preserved so well. It doesn't make sense that it should have happened the way it happened, unless it really is God. And if it's God, then it's the most important communication he's ever given us. So we just want you to read it. And this week we're giving you a little reading schedule. We're going to be giving you five days and and here's how it's going to go. You know, you can read more if you want, but on Monday we're going to have you read the Ten Commandments because you know what? The Ten Commandments have been the bedrock of almost every national legal system in the Western world for a thousand or more years. And most of us probably say we live by the Ten Commandments, but we probably don't even know what they are. So we're going to have you read them so you know what they are. 
On Tuesday, we're going to have you read the story of David and Bathsheba that I just kind of alluded to, and, and you're going to get to read the whole story. And then, and then on Wednesday, you're going to read this amazing, amazing interaction between David and this prophet Nathan. And Nathan came to David and confronted the, one of the most powerful kings in the world on his sin. And you're going to get to see a glimpse of how that happened and how this great leader risked everything to go to another great leader to, to draw him back to God. And then on Thursday, you're going to read Psalm 51 and you're going to see David's own reflection on his sin and, and how he viewed God and, and what he cried out to God with in terms of repentance. And then on Friday, you're going to be able to read John 8, which is an example where we get to see Jesus also interacting with someone who... Had adult, was caught in adultery. And you get to see the Old Testament. You get to see the law. You get to see how God interacted with somebody in the Old Testament. You get to see Jesus interacting with someone with the exact same issue. And you know what? If you haven't read it before, I'm guessing it's going to change your view and your picture of who God is. Because if we haven't read it, I guarantee you've picked up things about a picture of God and about a picture of what the Bible teaches that is not even true. And the most important thing we can have in life, the most important thing, is a clear picture of God and who He really is. So, I want to ask you one more thing. As you read this week, I would just like you to pray before you read and say, God, would you help me to see who you really are and see the way you want me to see? And then, God, would you help me follow through and live this as you want me to live it. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for preserving this amazing, amazing document. Lord, that I believe are very alive, living words from you that, that not only speak of history and, and speak of things to come yet through prophecy of your second coming, but they speak to us even now and they, and they relate to the story of our lives even now because they give us a clear picture of your love, your patience, your grace, your kindness, and your way of life that you want to bring to us so that we can live a fulfilling life, a wonderful, good life. So Lord, help us this week as we read, to read it not just as pen on paper, but to read it as though you're going to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you don't believe God's going to speak, would you at least pray that prayer? It's not any worse than you standing in the shower talking to yourself. Right? Have a great week. If you came and, uh, if you came and would like somebody to pray, uh, there'll be people available to pray for you. Let's, let's have a wonderful week.